What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. Today, I want to give you a quick overview of foam. No, not the stuff on the bed for a robot case, but free open access medical education. And I'm also going to talk a bit about the state of social media in anesthesia education. I was recently invited to be a guest on the podcast Beyond the Mask with Dr. Sharon Pierce and Jeremy Stanley. We hit on some of these same topics. So if you want to hear more on this, stay tuned for their show to drop. I had a blast catching up with them and have so much respect for what they're doing and where they want to take their podcast. Our paths first crossed back in 2015 when Brad Morgan interviewed Jeremy on the finances of CRNAs working in 1099 contracts for our podcast from the head of the bed. Jeremy and I talked again a couple of years later as he was setting up Beyond the Mask. He and Sharon have done a remarkable job capturing stories related to nurse anesthesia and are currently lining up talks with various content producers in the social media and nurse anesthesia worlds. While we talked about foam and social media on their show, I wanted to clarify some points here because from what I remember, I think I may have been a rambling idiot during our conversation and given them a true test of their podcasting editing skills. So, what is foam and why does it matter and where is the social media world right now in terms of anesthesia? Free open access medical education or foam is any medical education content that's shared freely on open access platforms, meaning the public can consume it without having to be a member of an organization or pay a subscription fee. The reason it's significant is that it brings evolving science and literature and discussions around the art and science of medicine into the hands of providers without the traditional paywalls that trade associations or peer-reviewed journals put up between you and their content, usually in order to fund their work. Foam is all about the accessibility of information, and given the rapid pace at which medical information evolves and podcasts, blogs, and online journals can be updated, Foam helps shape conversations around what's happening right now in healthcare. It's been said that if you want to know the state of the literature five to seven years ago, read the latest edition of any textbook. If you all want to know what's going on two to three years ago, go read the print journal that just came to your mailbox. And if you want to know what's happening and changing right now, then get on social media. I think this is mostly true. In some domains, print journals, and especially their online versions, can cycle through a peer review and publication process much faster than two to three years. For instance, the global pandemic has accelerated the pace at which public health and epidemiological studies about COVID-19 are conducted, written, reviewed, and published. However, many papers that might be up to date when they're actually submitted to a journal go through a months-long peer review and revision process, and once they're actually accepted for publication, they enter a queue in the journal's calendar, and it might be years before they see the light of day. Ironically, that's exactly what happened with the paper my colleagues and I published on the use of social media in nurse anesthesia education, in which we mentioned the idea of publishers abandoning print journals and going to fully online publications. We wrote that they should do this, quote, as a means to maintain and even increase relevance with their audience, because going fully online enhances the speed with which new publications can be disseminated, consumed, and adopted, and or challenged by medical communities, end quote. 
We wrote our paper in 2015 while in grad school and based the literature review on articles published largely in the five-year time frame prior to that. The review and revision process took several months, and once it was accepted by the AANA Journal, it was queued for publication and finally came out almost two years later in February of 2017. If print journals went fully online, they could bring a new paper forward as soon as it's ready and probably save a ton of money in not printing and mailing all those journals. Our paper reviewed the concept of foam and made the case for using social media as an educational tool in nurse anesthesia education. We also outlined a logic model of how to create an educational podcast, if that's something that you think you might want to do. I'll put a link in the show notes to the article. I'm also going to post a link to a more recent journal article, one published in 2020, that provides a more detailed history of free open access medical education. It's from the ATS Scholar, a journal of the American Thoracic Society, and it breaks down the roots of foam and outlines the concept and looks to the future potential impact of free open access medical education. So this concept of foam arose around 2010. Blogs and podcasts like Life in the Fast Lane by critical care intensivist Ollie Flower and MCRIT by emergency medicine intensivist Scott Weingart were front runners in the field. These and other innovators helped foam catch on and spread to a global healthcare community of early adopters, people who saw the potential of removing organizational and paywall barriers in sharing medical information. Around this time, when I was getting ready to apply to anesthesia school, I couldn't find any podcasts that focused specifically on anesthesia. The fields of critical care and emergency medicine were the early adopters of using podcasts. So that's what I listened to on my commute. It was an amazing time. I lived in the mountains outside of Asheville, North Carolina, and would cruise back and forth to work in an old Jeep Wrangler, usually with the doors off, listening to everything I could find on critical care and emergency medicine. Back then, you could actually listen to everything. There were only like two or three shows out there. <laughs> it was amazing. So when I got to anesthesia school, also in Asheville at Western Carolina University, and it was time to pick out a project, I knew that I wanted to create a podcast specifically for anesthesia providers. Three of my classmates joined the effort and our program gave us the green light. We ended up launching from the head of the bed in 2015 and writing that paper I talked about. I continued producing podcasts under the name from the head of the bed until 2020 when I changed the name to what you're listening to now, Anesthesia Guidebook. At this point in time, July of 2021, there's lots of podcasts on anesthesia topics and more shows than I can count on critical care and emergency medicine. Not only that, but there's been an explosion of content from anesthesia providers across every major social media platform who are communicating and telling stories with all different kinds of angles and motivations. The accessibility of medical information and specifically information about anesthesia, has never been more widespread than it is now. Foam has changed the way healthcare providers learn, the way their professors teach, and how all these people do their thing in the clinical environment. If you want to know about a concept, you've got textbooks and class lectures for sure, but also apps, Wikipedia, YouTube channels, dozens of podcasts, Facebook groups to ask questions in, and even people on Instagram and TikTok that will probably sing and dance their way through explaining things to you. It's really quite amazing. So let's take a bit of a sidestep. I was recently asked by Emma, an SRNA at the University of New England, about phones in the OR. She's writing a paper on it and wanted to know my thoughts. 
While the topic could certainly be a whole podcast in itself, I will say this. There's no denying that healthcare learners and providers rely on smartphones for in-the-moment references and guidance in clinical decision-making, as well as real-time communication as part of a healthcare team. These are, after all, phones. And accessing patient data on mobile electronic health records. The smartphone is as much of a clinical tool to the modern anesthesia provider as is the video laryngoscope. Could you get the job done without one? Sure, but a lot of people think anesthesia is a whole lot easier with one. Now, the topic of how cell phones can be a source of distraction and disrupt an anesthesia provider's attention and vigilance, obviously during a case, is a topic for another day. But we can't deny that having access to free and even paid digital content on our smartphones has changed the way anesthesia residents learn how professors teach and communicate, and how most of us do our jobs in and around the ORs. And we're really just getting started with this. I know for millennials, y'all can't remember a time when you didn't have a smartphone in your hand or at least somewhere nearby. But the rest of us who remember the sound of dial-up internet, y'all know what I'm talking about, who remember pay phones and tape players and all like this old school technology, uh, the idea of smartphones, their use and in integration into our clinical practices and how they are integrated into healthcare uh, more widely is still relatively new and will certainly continue to evolve. I'm confident that the use of smartphones and other personal mobile technology will continue to improve, linking us to better and better reference content more user-friendly access to patient records, and improved real-time communication between healthcare providers and our patients and their families. All right, so let's shift gears and talk a little bit more specifically about what's up with social media in nurse anesthesia education right now. So I've got four points on social media. One, there is so much of it. Two, there is little to no quality control. Three, to dig deep and get your learn on, you probably need to get off social media. And four, look for the incentive. So first, there is so much out there in the world of social media right now. I've already mentioned the explosion of information across digital platforms, so I won't belabor this point. But the fact that so many people are producing content and telling stories is a wonderful thing. It's easier than ever to publish, to be heard, to say what you want to say. It used to be said that being a CRNA was the best kept secret in healthcare. You had to know someone who was a CRNA or an anesthesia provider to learn about the profession. But today, there's dozens and dozens of providers and students who blog and post their way through training and about their lives and jobs. It's easier than ever to find a few people who are anesthesia providers or trainees on social media, follow along and see what it's like. Most of these storytellers are telling worthwhile stories. They're showing people what it's like, what it takes, and how to get there. And they're playing the game. They're learning what sticks, what entertains, how to produce content that hits on those receptors and gets promoted by the algorithms. Since social media platforms have made it easier than ever to say what you want to say, and more and more people are doing just that, it brings us to these other points. So number two, there's little to no quality control. Anyone can say or post just about whatever they want on social media. While some academic educators and researchers have scoffed at these platforms, a post on social media, a podcast, or a live Instagram video is really not that much different than a presentation at a conference, other than we would hope that the conference producers do some sort of basic vetting of their presenters. But a conference presentation itself is usually not 
pre-peer-reviewed for accuracy and relevance. The algorithm for quality control in conference presentations is a little slower and more analog than social media. The presenter may not be invited back and the attendee may not go to that conference provider again, but the general idea is the same. Those content producers who consistently bring forward compelling, accurate, and engaging stories get promoted, and those who don't, don't. But the thing end users, that's you and me when we surf social media or attend a conference, have to understand is that we are ultimately responsible for how we integrate the information we see and hear across platforms, whether it's social media or conferences, into our practices. We must discern whether something is true or not, has impact or not, is evidence-based or not, before we bring that into the OR. And to do that, you have to get off social media, usually, which is point number three. While checking out what your favorite content producer is up to is fine, whether it's the latest podcast or a meme stream on Insta, if you really want to dig deep and refine your anesthesia practice, you need to get off social media and do the reading. Your inquiry might start with social media. You hear an interesting topic on a podcast or at a conference or in a YouTube video, but then you need to dig deeper. You need to fact check the references because remember, anybody can post pretty much anything on social media, which includes podcasts and YouTube videos, uh, even, even on topics that address core science or anesthesia practice. So before you just see a post on Instagram that explains an airway technique or how someone approaches you know, particular pharmacological intervention, and then you, you know, before you take that and integrate that into your practice, you've got to get off social media and go do the reading. You need to fact check references. You need a foundational understanding of physiology and pharmacology brought to you by textbooks. Maybe you can find super high quality video audio content, you know, podcast or YouTube or whatever, but there's usually no substitution for actually doing the reading. Go turn some pages, read the actual journal articles, and learn how to evaluate medical literature. It's shocking, but not everything published in a peer-reviewed journal is actually worthwhile or statistically significant or powered appropriately to change practice. And that's in peer-reviewed journal articles, much less some dude's random blog or YouTube video on social media. And so learning how to read scientific literature is usually way harder than watching TikTok videos or Instagram reels. But I would love to be proven wrong on this last point. So if anyone out there makes a compelling TikTok or Instagram video on how to discern the quality of scientific studies, please tag Anesthesia Guidebook, send me the link. I want to check that out. But usually, if you want to dig deeper, become an expert anesthesia provider, master your craft, you have to step your game up. You've got to move beyond what's being talked about on social media in terms of anesthesia content and education and actually go read the journal articles, get into the literature and see what the evidence actually says. Now, a lot of people just cruise social media for the entertainment value, right? Uh, even from your favorite anesthesia personalities. There's people on there doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And that's totally fine. Cruising social media for a few minutes a day can be an amazing source of entertainment. Uh, the top memes are absolutely hilarious. They bring a level of truth and catharsis to what's actually going on in healthcare and can be a, a great way to relax or just chill out. Uh, but it's easy to get sucked in and end up wasting hours of your day. So consider this, set a time limit on your social media accounts that's outrageously generous at first, like two hours a day. I was going to say one hour, but 
some of you are starting from a deep hole. So set a limit for two hours a day. See if you hit it. If you do, get off your phone. Then slowly, over time, reduce that limit. When I started doing this, I set a time limit for one hour and then 45 minutes and then 30. And now it's just 15 minutes. The alarm goes off after 15 minutes. Uh, I get a little pop-up and then I think, you know, maybe I do want to be a human today. And so I put my phone down and I go do something else, like talk to my family or play with my dogs or go work out or write you this lovely podcast. So try it. You might like it. All right. So one last point on social media, look for the incentive. What's the story people are telling? What's motivating the content they're producing? And is that something that's worth your time and maybe even your money? A major incentive behind what many people are doing on social media is income generation. Now, there's nothing wrong with monetizing a social media platform. Lots of healthcare providers are marketing side hustles through social media, whether it's professional coaching and mentoring, health and beauty products, or trying to build a big enough following that they can catch advertising dollars from companies who want to reach all those followers. The social media accounts are like storefront windows for some sort of paid service or advertising. It's the visible aspect of what the producer is really up to, which is trying to generate income. And that's fine, of course. If you can spend a buck off a social media account, why not? I'm totally sure that there's probably SRNAs out there or residents who are paying their way. Well, I mean, residents get paid, but let's not bring that point up. So there's SRNAs out there who are probably paying their way through graduate school uh, based off of their social media kickbacks. So who knows? But you know, what I want you to think about is the incentive behind what people are doing and how that influences your interaction with them. So how does the undercurrent of income generation influence what you're putting out there as a content producer or seen as a consumer? Is there a bias because of the money? Remember, unlike peer-reviewed journals, there's no mandatory disclosure of conflicts of interest in social media. So if someone is promoting a product or service, think about whether that person is getting a kickback from repping that product. There's a thin line between educating or telling an authentic personal story and marketing. So you have to ask, you know, is the incentive to truly educate or to tell your story or to show people the way that you do something or to sell them something? Uh, do these distinctions matter? Do they matter to you as the content producer? Are you staying true to your values and your mission along the way? And do they matter to the end user? Are you, as you cruise social media, stoked about what you're seeing your favorite people do, the accounts that you follow? Uh, you know, are they are they offering you an accurate representation of you know what their path and journey looks like? You know, or are they showing you things because they're getting some sort of a financial kickback? So we have to filter this stuff through social media. So in another vein, a lot of social media producers are trying to huck some kind of service. You know, they've got a social media account, they've got an Instagram account or TikTok or whatever. And, you know, they've got this like storefront window where they're, you know, have got all this free content out there. But what they're really trying to do is pull you in uh, to become a member of a paid service or a site or some kind of a membership program that they're offering. So you as the, as the surfer of the internet webs have to decide if that's something that's worth your time and money. You've got to think about your goals, where you're headed, and whether you can maybe put the work in yourself without investing in some sort of a coach or a mentor, or maybe if you would actually benefit from someone giving you, you know, from their time and expertise for your money. So you got to try to triangulate the value of a coaching service by speaking to someone who's actually used it. So 
An example of this is Peter Struby's board preparation service for SRNAs. I knew about Peter for a long time before I met him, before I taught alongside him at conferences, and then eventually interviewed him for this podcast, which is episode 14 if you want to go check it out. I knew he offered a service for board preparation, particularly geared for those SRNAs who have failed boards, and I knew he had caught flack from CRNAs for marketing the service on social media accounts. People question cynically, you know, why why should a CRNA charge, pray even, as some people leveraged, uh, on SRNAs who have failed boards? You know, why should they charge for their advice on how to study and improve their chances? Because there's a lot of people out there who would just, you know, offer a quick email or a message or whatever for free. Uh, it's easy to question and be skeptical about something that we don't fully understand. It takes more effort to get the real story which is what I ended up doing with Peter. So I talked to SRNAs who used Peter's services. I talked with CRNAs who've partnered with Peter in his work. And then I talked to Peter. And then after all of that, we sat down and we did the podcast. So yes, he charges for his service. And yes, he markets that service on social media. So yes, there's a financial incentive at play in you know, what he's doing. You know, but the real incentive for him, the thing that keeps Peter up at night and gets him going in the morning is his desire to give back. It's his desire to help other people be successful and get over this board hurdle. And just in case you're wondering, I have no financial connection with Peter Struby. This is just an example of somebody out there who is hustling some sort of an income generating uh, service through social media related to anesthesia and how to triangulate that and see if there's true value in what someone's offering. And so like Peter, if you're a content producer and you have a clear mission, you have a clear purpose to your work beyond just making money, and you put that out on social media, you're in a position to actually make a difference. You know, maybe not for everyone, you might not get thousands of followers or subscribers or whatever, but you might make a really big difference in the lives of a few people. And that's probably worth it. So if you're a content producer and money isn't your number one incentive, then be clear about what is. If it's just amassing followers, you might be missing the point. What are you saying through your accounts? Are you telling a good story? Are you using your platform to actually say something meaningful? Or are you just dancing to the algorithm piper, doing whatever it takes to get more and more people to follow your page and comment on your post? I think a lot of content producers, whether it's people on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, podcasts, YouTube, whatever, they have their own popularity or income potential at the heart of what they're doing. In this paradigm, listeners and subscribers exist to help the producer or the podcast or the account reach its goals of being top rated, well known, or profitable. In the business world, the incentive is often similar. Clients exist to help the business reach its goals, whether it's growing contracts, becoming well-known, or profitable. But when we position the client or the listener or follower as someone who's only there to help us, the content producer or business owner, reach our goals, we have the relationship all backwards. Check this out because this idea runs counter to how many very popular social media influencers and businesses position themselves. 
as a content producer, business, or creator, you're not the hero of the story. Your clients don't need you to be their hero. They're not there to help you have more followers, likes, or downloads. That's boring and uninteresting. And their incentive is something very different. Your clients are the heroes of their story. They're on a journey in which they will face problems and have to overcome challenges and uncertainty in order to be successful and win the day. If you try to be the hero, you'll likely fail. But if you see your clients, followers, or listeners as the hero of their own stories and position yourself as a guide for their journey, as someone who helps equip them and empowers them to achieve their goals and become successful in their stories, you're suddenly in a much better position. For example, let's say you're an anesthesia staffing company. Your goal should be to help your clients become more successful. How can you help the dental office take better care of their patients with less effort on their part? How can you help the ASE save money, operate more efficiently, and achieve quality outcomes? How does your company help the CEO of the hospital achieve her goals? If the hospital is only there to serve you up a big fat contract with greater subsidies every year for no real gain or progress made towards their goals, you're a sitting duck and you're likely going to get fired. So for me, it's never been about how many followers, likes, and downloads Anesthesia Guidebook gets. It's not about where Anesthesia Guidebook is in the charts or how much income or popularity this podcast can create. The goal is not to be adored by listeners or have a bunch of followers and get a bunch of positive ratings. Don't get me wrong. Being respected and having positive reviews is great. It's just not the point. It's not the goal. The goal is to help you, the provider, the doer of great deeds, the person in the trenches and on the sharp end, master your craft and come through for your patients when it counts. In fact, since we're talking about it, I think there's three specific challenges that you'll likely face in your career. The first is to secure positive outcomes for your patients. The second is navigating the business and politics of healthcare. And the third is maintaining a sense of personal well-being. So you'll see content from Anesthesia Guidebook focus on these three areas. My goal is to help you develop as an expert clinician and also become savvy in the business of healthcare while maintaining a sense of well-being and balance in the various domains of your life, your career being just one of several domains. My goal is not to be the hero, but to be a guide to the real heroes, to be a guide on the side, not a sage on the stage. That's one reason why I changed the name of the podcast to Anesthesia Guidebook. The podcast, website, and social media accounts are all being built as a guidebook for providers, something you can reference when you need to so you can stay sharp, stay ready, and crush it day in and day out. If I'm delivering on that mission, then the number of downloads, likes, follows, and whatever other external markers of success can either come or not come. None of that matters when you are staring down at a grade four airway or wondering if it's time to pull out the rapid infuser and call a massive transfusion. In those moments, how popular this show is does not matter. But if you've heard something here that helps you when you're there, then this show has served its purpose. So where do we take it from here? For one thing, you should know that this show will continue to be free and open access. It's interesting that Apple, the original and largest podcast host in the world, has actually just made it easier than ever for podcasters to monetize their shows and set up paywalls for access. 
Podcasters can now very easily require paid subscriptions for access to the shows right through Apple. But that's not the direction Anesthesia Guidebook is moving. The show will continue to be free in order to eliminate paywall barriers and bring you the best content right to your fingertips and earbuds. Free open access medical education without the bias or influence from advertising dollars is a powerful force in the world of healthcare. Foam will shape the future of how information is shared and how clinicians do their jobs. As social media has grown exponentially over the last decade, medical information is more accessible than ever. With that explosion of content has come the need for clinicians to discern the quality of the information they see and hear, and also evaluate the incentives behind the content, accounts, and providers they're looking to for clinical information. The best educators and the most powerful influencers will not position themselves as heroes of the story. Instead, they will see their clients, the providers in the trenches, as the real heroes and find ways to help those providers overcome the challenges they face so they can win the day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for pushing forward in your careers and continuing to strive to master your craft. I hope this podcast continues to serve you well in the story that you're writing. Take care, and I'll see you a little further down the path. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.